Hey, Steve here, and uh, I've been gone for a little bit. Sorry about that. I had some major surgery take place, and uh, I'm working my way back. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, um, I'll have some recordings that I had uh, completed but not gotten a chance to publish yet. And uh, just want to let you all know that soon I'll be re um, recording again and, uh, and uh, doing everything else, and hopefully my voice will be returning back as well. But uh, looking forward to uh, joining you again. Thanks so much for... Uh, Stay in put and, and welcome me back into your uh, into your lives. So uh, uh, more of uh, teaching, learning, leading K twelve on its way. Thanks so much. I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors. Find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Matt Fitzpatrick. He's the author of the Justin McGee Thriller Trilogy. Our focus is on the third book, Demon Tide. Awesome conversation. I couldn't stop reading it, and you won't want to put it down either. By the way, don't forget, it would be so awesome if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and left a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code. Capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Matt Fitzpatrick is a former investment management professional who jettisoned Wall Street to pursue his dream as a novelist. He is the proud father of two daughters and enjoys every minute of watching them thrive and excel. A licensed Coast Guard captain, Matt cherishes life by the ocean and time boating on Nantucket Sound. With a deep media background mostly steeped in radio and print, he considers it a gift to be able to tell his stories and share his life experiences through the eyes of his protagonist, Justin McGee. 
Matt lives on Cape Cod. For more information, visit him at mattfitzpatrickbooks.com. Matt is the author of the Justin McGee trilogy. Today we're focused on part three called Demon Tide. And here's a little description of that. This is a community that has lost its innocence, a quaint New England town that meets the growing opioid epidemic head on. The the town's casualties build up as local law enforcement, as well as out-of-towners in the form of Justin McGee and his family, realize that it's a crime that stems within the community's own. A town whose roots are the source of pride are shattered, knowing they have been infiltrated by the New England-Nova Scotia drug trade. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hey. Hi, everyone. Uh, It is a pleasure to be here, and um, it's a great opportunity. I can't wait to speak to your audience. Well, cool. Glad you're here and uh, loved your book. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But before we do that, you, you start off with a cool scene. And, I, and when I read your bio after I read your book, I realized, oh, yeah, this is cool. He's a licensed captain. We got to talk about boating for a minute because you get this awesome. I, the first thing I was going to ask you originally was obviously you've experienced something with boating because you got the, these cool scenes. Uh, what type of boating do you like the most? What do you do? Um, I, you know, I, I have the Coast Guard license and all that. I have to, as a means of uh, full disclosure, I'm not a Coast Guard, you know, I've never been out in, in service, but I am a licensed captain and I do a lot of boating. I'm, I'm lucky. I live on Cape Cod. So if you're surrounded on three sides by ocean, so inherently you got to get out there. You want to uh, participate. So no, I like, I used to, when I was younger, I would do a lot of kind of hardcore fishing, 30, 40 miles out, um, really kind of in any weather, you know, it didn't matter. I'd go out, you know, now I'm much more of a fair weather fan. And if conditions are perfect, which on Cape Cod is rare, but I like going out and cruising around and maybe a little light fishing, but mostly cruising. And on the nice days, it is a, a good way to sort of, you do when you say people, you know, you want to get away from it all, it is, if you definitely, you want to be with nature for a little bit, there's, there's no better way. I could never live landlocked. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, and, and just as, just as a note, I, you know, I love, I've spent some times on, I didn't own them. I was on other people's sailboats or on their boats or whatever, but I love fishing and I love, uh, the idea of uh, living near an ocean, although I don't now, <laughs> but I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, which the ocean was right there, and yeah. uh, and that's one of the things I do miss uh, about where I live now. But it's also well, it's funny. I got the I got the license because I had these visions of on the side I was going to do some some chartering, you know, taking people out, and I did a few charters, uh, fishing charters, and what happened I realized was it turned something I love into work. So I haven't chartered in a while, but I do, you know, I do love getting out there on my own time. That's cool. Yeah. I can, I can imagine that would not be fun once you realize, wait a second, I don't want yeah. this to be work. I want this to be fun. So good stuff. The, uh, oh, I love it. I, that, that's so cool that you do that. And yeah, I would think that it's calling you at some point to, to, to be out there in the water if you're surrounded by it. <laughs> Gotta love that. Yeah, it, that's the nice thing about Cape Cod. If, if you're driving, you can't get too lost, you know, <laughs> At some point, you're gonna run into the beach, and you'll figure out where you are. So you can't get too lost on Cape Cod. I like that. Awesome. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I got to ask you is that in your bio, I mean, you left behind the invest- investment management career and shifted to being a novelist. What was that like? Making that step? <laughs> it was frightening. Um, it's it's funny because when I was a kid, um, let's say twelve years old, and I 
at 12 years old, I was kind of reading what kids, you know, I'm 51 now, so think of the time period. I was reading what kids read. I mean, Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary. and But then one day I stumbled, I don't know, we I stumbled upon um, a copy of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. And I read that. And it changed everything. It, it, it kind of parted the clouds, not to be melodramatic, but it really did for a young kid. And I said, that's what I want to do. That's, that's what I want to do. And, you know, a lot of kids growing up, they want to be NFL stars. They want to be rock stars. They want to be astronauts. I always wanted to be a novelist. I, that was what I wanted. And so I did a career and, and, and it was very good to me. It allowed me to kind of do this foray, but you got to understand it. Once you, Get in your, I mean, by the time I decided to be an author, I mean, I was in my mid-40s, maybe even a year or two older, and you have to be prepared to resign yourself to a life of poverty and obscurity. (laughs) So (laughs) it's very different than being in my former world of, you know, investments in Wall Street and very, very different. There's plus and minuses, but... It is truly not being cliche, but it is the road less traveled and I have no regrets. That is cool. That is very cool. I just, I just know when I read that, I'm like, that's gotta be a trip. It made that change. Cause that's especially cause like you said, this, it's not like you were 25 and went, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to go this way. <laughs> no, I, I did the right thing. I, you know, have my daughters are in college now and I, you know, kind of got that squared away. And, um, I have two girls uh, and, and they're in school, they're doing great. So I thought it was a time. I'm like, if, if I don't do this now, and kind of in the midst of all it, of it, um, my best friend who grew up like brothers, my dearest, dearest best friend died suddenly at 48. And that gave me some perspective. I said, you know what? This is way too short, way too shocking. And um, if I don't do it now, you know, I, I, I'll regret it sometime. So I, so I, you know, I, I went out, tried it, got some great feedback, um, published, you know, I, I got the attention of a, a publisher pretty much out of the gate, published two books. Now I'm on a new publisher. Demon Tide is the third book. I know we're going to talk about today and I'm working on a fourth and I, I love it. I mean, you give up a lot becoming an author. Yeah. I will people, you know, when I speak to groups and they want to think it's all rosy and this amazing artistic epiphany and journey. And there is that element. There is that element, but you got to be prepared for the downside. It, it, it's, 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 it is, I find the publishing world <clears throat> rougher than wall street. Wall Street, there were rules. I mean, with the SEC, we had, you know, people looking over us, kicking our tires. There are rules. Not everyone is Bernie Madoff. Trust me. Uh, the publishing world, the Wild West. I can only imagine, I mean, especially with, uh, you know, kind of the at one time um, much more than the Big Eight. Then the Big Eight kind of becomes four. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, the, I'm sure. And so if they're setting the rules, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting. I, I can only imagine what that's like. And, uh, but, uh, well, cool stuff. I, and I got to tell you, we're going to start getting into your book here in just a minute. You've written a, you've created a neat character and, and let's kind of shift there because, uh, um, you have this character named Justin McGee. So tell everyone who is he? Well, Justin is in, well, in, he started out 
in the beginning. He's a, in his late 30s. He is a hotshot Boston attorney, uh, handsome, um, Brooks Brothers suit type of guy. But he moonlights as a very high-paid assassin. And But he only takes jobs where, in his mind, the person deserves it. So there's a little bit of a Dexter in him. Now, I wrote Crosshairs, the first book, before I ever saw Dexter. So I wasn't copying it. But it, it's not a it, – that model is not exactly new. Um, but I made this character. I wanted to try to make it multidimensional. And, um, but he is inherently – narcissistic and he um is devoid of feeling in the beginning but as he evolves he becomes a little more human even in that type of profession um and i named him justin mcgee justin the first name i just thought was a cool name for an assassin because justin's kind of a, a gentle name you know it's not like Spike like. or Ace. <laughs> right. Justin. Who, who, who would ever be afraid of a Justin, right? Right. And McGee, I paid homage to my favorite fiction writer of all time, John D. McDonald, um, who's a legend. He's inspired Stephen King and Donald Westlake and Sue Grafton. If you read the back of his, you know, who gives him blurbs, these are serious blurbs. Um, Carl Hyacinth wrote the foreword to all the um, reissue of the his series. Um, so I paid homage to, um, John D. McDonald by naming, uh, my protagonist McGee. That's cool. That's cool to know that. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that's awesome when it, and someone's done something like that. So awesome stuff. Well, I got to tell you, we're, we're going to start getting into, into your book and, uh, and, and it's just, he, he's a cool character. And, you know, at some point I was going to say, I'm not so sure you got good guys here or not, <laughs> but, uh, but they they shine through, which is cool. So, uh, but uh, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's funny. You know, I kind of write about bad people doing bad things, and um, they do shine through. But they, they they're all flawed, and but they're all trying to survive in this sort of changing world, and they're they're scratchers. And um, I like I like to think that I didn't create any monsters. You know, I, I, that, that's not one. I mean, there was a lot of, in my work, there's a lot of places I could go to really make them almost monsters. Uh, but my protagonist and my main characters, they all have a shed of light to them. They really all do. There are some characters in my books who are just downright nasty. Um, and you know, if, you know, for people who know me, I'm like such a peaceful guy and, and like, you know, (laughs) I'm into John Lennon and, you know, um, a very simple life. So that's what intrigued me about the crime space and why I wanted to write about it. I sort of grew up, uh, again, with, you know, McDonald and Stephen King and, and, and some different writers we can talk about. But um, really, Justin was born out of it, it just sort of being intrigued by that, that those that crime space, especially being from Boston. I mean, it was so entrenched in it. I mean, it's like, Every day in the news, I mean, we we dealt with the Whitey Bulger thing for 20 years, you know, and um, no, it's it's they're not they're nasty people, but they do have some air of humanity. If you if you read the the novel and, 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 you know, they uh, they care about one another um, and they like to think that 
any of the crimes they're committing or any of the, you know, sins that society would deem unacceptable are only bestowed upon people who deserve it. Which is such a cool route. And, and it does. And I, there's, there's so many different parts of your book that I, I could talk about because you have some interesting um, curveballs, I think, are the best way of throwing, <laughs> throwing your audience, the best way of describing it, which I'm not going to go there because the, re- the listeners need to go read. But um, it, it's cool because, like I said, at, at first I started going, wow, is there anybody who's doing something good here? <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Now, one of the things I got to drag us back to is before we go any further, before I leave the boats too much, is that you obviously have experienced seasickness. <laughs> yes. Because your characters, <laughs> the, there's this beginning. I'm like, you really sucked me into this. You have this, you have a really cool skill at painting pictures with words. And and one of my favorite is this, you know, this in the beginning, which there's more to it than this, but I'm just going to read this part. You know, while its intimidating presence commanded respect at the dock with its massive steel hull and surly crew, at the moment it was a rubber duck in a tub. The captain and crew were trying to maintain station in the wheelhouse as the relentless pounding had no end. I mean, throughout the book, there are awesome descriptions that make you feel the scene. And as this gets into the scene, you know, there's, there's some puking going on and there's other things happening and stuff like this. And it's like my worst nightmare because I, I love deep sea fishing. And until in the last couple of years, uh, um, my dad used to always tell this story about how I cost him all this money because he'd take me out deep sea fishing and have to turn around and come back because I'd be so sick. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm so thankful for the patch. This is not sponsored by the patch, but uh, I now can go out deep sea fishing, which is cool. But uh, it, So obviously you've been seasick, but you paint, you create these descriptions throughout the book. I mean, how do you do this? How do you, how do you accomplish this? What, what is it that's going through your mind when you're making these, uh, painting these images for the readers? Well, that, that opening passage you cited, that, that's a cool one. Thank you. Um, I was lucky in that uh, I got to, to meet Linda Greenlaw. Um, the uh, library in my hometown of Lowell, Massachusetts is named after my grandfather. So I was on the board of directors for a while. And we had speakers come in. And Linda Greenlaw, who, if for, for your uh, the folks watching and listening, um, if they ever saw or read Perfect Storm, there were two boats out there and the movie is what most people are familiar with and, and they can visualize. There was George Clooney's boat. And then there was a female captain out there and that's Linda Greenlaw. And Linda in real life became a novelist and, and, and actually wrote a lot of nonfiction about her life. And I got to know her through the library and she is fascinating. So she gave me a lot of insight on what it was really like out there. And then just being a boater myself, for years up on the North shore, uh, I'm Cape Cod now for about three years, but prior to that, I was on the North shore. And when you go out there and when I talk about, you know, the, the menacing steel hull being turned into a rubber duck, I mean, that's really what happens. I mean, it's, uh, it, it inspired me that that whole scene wrote itself, to be honest. I, it was almost like a nightmare coming true. And that, that, that was, an, to be honest, I get some great feedback on that scene. I, and, and so many people have said to me, I, you, they, I grabbed them there, you know, which I am flattered to hear that. That's awesome. That was my goal. But that scene wasn't hard to write. It was actually kind of easy. It's, it's funny that the, the really good stuff, because every writer has good material and maybe material isn't 
as great. Um, but the really stuff that flows and the reader takes it in, embraces it, internalizes, that stuff just writes itself from what's in your head. Well, that's if it's cool. a forced passage, you can tell. Well, that's cool because I got to tell you, that's uh, um, you really just like you were referencing someone else. I mean, that really sucked me in because that whole time I'm like, I, I got to, <laughs> I, I really get a feel for the, what's happening and what's getting ready to happen, minus a few things, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and that was just awesome because and and you you continue to do that with other types of activities throughout your book. So, kudos on that. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, one of the things I got to, I got to mention here is this, you, um, you referenced something that I thought so cool because I've not heard anybody else reference this. I am a, um, I am a big fan of, uh, I was in college in the eighties, especially early eighties. And, uh, and, uh, a band that I liked was the call and, uh, you reference the call and a specific song in the lyrics, which dude, that's awesome. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's kind of neat because you kind of bring in uh, real stuff into into your world here that uh, exists, and it has a purpose. And uh, first, you got to tell me about uh, what what made you reach out for uh, the call in that song. Um, but uh, also, just uh, if you're think you know, as you're thinking and you're writing, um, are you mixing your, your worlds? Is some of it uh, the world you experienced? Well, I th I think it's funny that you're the first person to bring up that. Um, how I alluded to the song by the call. Um, not my favorite band, but I love that song. I'm a huge rock fan. Um, and I have my likes, but, um, I think I do infuse into my work, um, some scenes that are kind of anecdotal and, and, um, that particular scene, um, I have two daughters in college and I, I had some, once in a while I'll send them some song lyrics just to kind of inspire them and say, Hey, you know, I know we're dealing with COVID and you've got your studies and this is a chat, you know, they can't go to class. It, it, it's been tough for, you know, these kids. So I thought of that song and I send them the lyrics, I frame it. And I used it in the book because like you said, all these characters, they're dark and they're, they're all depraved and, you know, no, you got to infuse a little humanity, a little, it's like a little hope. It's like you have this cloudy day and just, those days where like one sunbeam will come through. And so I use that song um, for all the above and that that's where that came from. That's so awesome. And just as a note, I want to tell you that, uh, so I, I kept it playing in the background as I read your book. <laughs> so, which was, which was kind of fun too. It kind of gave an interesting soundtrack to the book. So. I, I've never thought of a soundtrack. That, that'd be exciting to put together. It, it would be, and it's just a note. So I, you had me going there because I had uh, my favorite song by the call is uh, a song called "The Walls Came Down," and uh, and that was just a big kind of hit. It more as as opposed to the lyrics, it had more to do with being a dance club song. <laughs> but uh, but it was uh, it, it has interesting lyrics that are way more having to do with the eighties and the you know Soviet troops and things like this that are in there. But uh, cool stuff. So I got to ask you. So you know, you, you said it right there. The call's not your favorite. So do you have a favorite from your, from before you, you like, uh, music? I know you said that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm actually a, a rock, like crazy rock music fan. People say, Oh, you're a music fan. I, yeah, I am. I'm more of a rock guy though, especially as I get older. When I was younger, I was a little more 
open to different things. Now, maybe it's a sign of aging. I'm getting like cranky and crotchety and like, nah, that's <laughs> not music. Now I find myself like my grandpa, you know what I mean? Like I'm doing oh, the same thing. I know exactly what you um, mean. My, I, uh, you know, it's funny. My older daughter, the last concert she went to before she went back to school, you know, this past fall was to go see Pitbull. And I know the guy is like, huge and he's got like an empire and 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 and, and i've actually heard him be in interviews he's an incredible brain and businessman and this guy's got his total act together in miami and he's built an empire but i don't know one song i don't know one song so i go back to the i i love um the black crows i love um rush um I love um, social distortion. Um, I I love rock, and rock to me goes from James Taylor to Metallica, and all in between. There's so much like amazing. I love Jimmy Buffett, not like cheeseburger stuff. I like his more sort of you dig into his catalog, and he's got some really interesting stuff that no one's ever heard. Um, yeah, I you know I I love Pink Floyd. It it goes on and on. it depends what my fancy is. But I'm very particular. If you and I are in the car together and you're playing something I don't like, I, I will. You, you got to shut this off. Like, <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I, I tend to. I guess people are like, oh, you're just into the heavy stuff. No, no, not at all. True. I love Gordon Lightfoot. I got to meet Gordon Lightfoot, which was oh, really cool. cool one night. That's cool. Um, man, a few words, but very cool guy, legend. Um, you know, so I. Uh, it definitely definitely inspires my work. Um, it's funny you say about how you're reading and you'll hear music when I'm writing, I do like to hear music, but not blaring, but I like a little hum in the background. I tend to go toward like Billy Joel, um, Carly Simon, Liz fair, just a little hum in the background. Cause it's like, you know, their creativity, it's like, okay, you get inspired by it. Look, look what these people have done with a blank canvas. And all right, it's your turn. But I keep it low. I don't sit there and, you know, blare all this crazy music. But um, music has had a huge effect on my work. And I know people like Stephen King are big rock fans. And, um, yeah, I, but I do find myself now being the, the old guy in the rocking chair yelling to turn off that stuff. That's funny. Sorry. That's, sign, of the, you know, sign of aging. Yeah, I'm on that planet with you. I I like I like lots of uh, music. I'm a uh, former trumpet player, and uh, um, I, there's lots of stuff with trumpets that I love from the past, and uh, um, lots of big name, just trumpet players. Everything from Herb Alpert to um, a lot of you know, Maynard Ferguson and Al Hurt and all kinds of people like that. But, uh, but I also, I love rock and, uh, you know, and I, I was in college in the eighties and so I'm a, I'm really stuck in the eighties in some ways, but uh, I got a lot of different decades, but I've really fallen in, you know, over the years in, in love with the rock from the seventies and eighties. So, and I just got a, recently got to go see Kiss and, uh, it took me a long enough time to go see him, but <laughs> I, I never bought a ticket on that train. I just never got it. Isn't that terrible? I, <sighs> I know that in monsters, but I, I just never there were certain huge bands I never could get. Kiss was one, the Grateful Dead. Uh, I just, there was certain, and you know, I love the Black Crows who were kind of hippy trippy like the dead. I just never, 
I don't know. Like, yeah. I never had the Kiss lunchbox. You know, <laughs> nice. I didn't. Nice. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Um, but, did. yeah, no, I, I think you, you do, if you're a rock fan, rock is such a, a genre. It seems like it's going to be short-lived, unfortunately, in the great scheme of music. Um, there's only a few bands still doing it, the Foo Fighters and, and um, whatnot. But um, I think we're all guys, I can't speak for you, but for me, we're going to get caught in arrested development with our listening over the next 20 years. I think we're going to be, we're going to become, uh, <laughs> you know, targets of mockery by our family and friends. Yes. I'm already that. <laughs> yeah. That's my my favorite thing that my wife likes to say is, uh, okay, I, all I want you to tell me is who was the president? <laughs> and because that's her favorite thing to mess with me about is that I'm, in, I'm really stuck in different decades with my music, <laughs> but uh, there's some good stuff. And there's a lot of rock that's found in country today. So, uh, which is cool. So it, it's, it's funny. My, my, my best friend and I, one night, this is probably, Oh, I don't know, five, six years ago, we were going to Pearl jam and he was driving, we're heading down and we were just driving maybe 45 minutes to go see the show. And so I'm going to Pearl Jam. So I want to hear Pearl Jam or, or I don't know, something, sometimes you don't want to hear the band, you don't want to hear, but something of that ilk, you know, and he's playing me, um, this guy, this country, he's into country. He's play uh, Eric church. Okay. Nice. He's, I know he's like wildly popular and yes. all that. And he's like, this guy, he's just like a rock guy and he's, edgy and he's this and i said well, why don't you just put some real rock on why do i have to hear like <laughs> rock white like i, I, I like no, that country i missed um jazz i can't get into i mean i'm, I'm an ignoramus i'm a dinosaur i i some classical i do like i can really get into some nice classical but in doses but in doses i respect it all i mean i, I you know it's just that I got you. All's good. All's good. So just as a side note, uh, I, I got to mention this. So, so I'm a, I'm a big Billy Idol fan. There's an eighties rock oh, reference. Yeah. Yeah, um, he's a survivor. He's a survivor. You got to hand it to him. Yes. He's come out with a new album just recently. And, yeah. and uh, we, you know, one of the things I always wish I'd seen ZZ Top in concert before, you know, some of them, they're, they're starting to pass away and it's like it driving me nuts. Cause um, oh, ZZ Watts. I mean, Charlie Watts, that was, that was, I mean, I was always more Beatles than Stones. I know there's like a rivalry. Right. Um, <laughs> but you, I mean, the Beatles lasted 10 years. The Stones are still, they're still doing it. It's crazy, um, isn't it? It's crazy. It's, and it's funny what you just said. For some reason, they've decided to pick on each other lately. I, I, you have to be a rock legend and decide to n call the other one a bar band or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that was, that was not cool. I saw that quote uh, somewhere on, you know, I mean, everything gets splashed to you every morning on the internet. But I think, I think it was Paul McCartney, right? Called them a it was. bar band. It was. It's like what? <laughs> that's like, rough. It is. Uh, I mean, that's, a, that's, a bar cover band, I think is what he referenced. A bar cover band. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Something yeah, like that's that. Not, that's not cool. I, no. uh, anyway. This crazy stuff, but that's cool. Sorry, I, I took you down that path too far, but I just wanted to. No, no, the problem is I could discuss rock all day. You know what I'm saying? Nice. I like that. So uh, good, good stuff. So, uh, so let's, let's shift back into our world of books. And, uh, and so you, right now you have this trilogy that has the first one's crosshairs and you have matriarch game and now demon tide. Um, do you know where that original idea came from? I mean, you, you know, you've talked a little bit about who Justin is, but why did, 
where'd this world come from that you just, I mean, what, what was the thing that's, that made you finish that first book? What made me finish, I, where Justin came from in the beginning, I, I had no idea. Like I said, I, I think as a kind of semi-pacifist, law-abiding citizen, I've always been intrigued by the crime space. You know, I grew up watching The Godfather and G2 and Goodfellas and, um, like I said, reading John D. McDonald. And um, I've always been fascinated with the crime space. And I think um, Justin... He just, I think he was spawn of, of my love for that world in not love, but in intrigue, you know, cause I'm a, you know, these guys, they, they, they don't go by the rules. You know, they have a certain freedom that maybe the average person would like, you know, they don't pay taxes. They don't pay speeding tickets. They don't, they do what they want when they want. Um, so Justin, I wasn't sure it was a bit alchemic in the beginning. It really was. It was sort of like, uh, you know, taking the, paintbrush in the can and slapping it. I really wasn't sure. And once the book was like three quarters finished, the gentleman I work with, I think who, you know, uh, Ben Tanzer, who was uh, editor extraordinaire out of Chicago. Cool. Um, love you, Ben. He, uh, he kind of, when, when I was really working with him digging and he knew I was going through a divorce at the time and which was, was terrible. I mean, everything's cool and, fine now but you know it's a horrible thing i wouldn't wish it on anyone and he's like you're writing a story you're writing an autobiography like what are you talking about i don't shoot anyone he's like no but what this assassin is symbolic of is what you feel like you've done to your your life your marriage you feel like you're an assassin and it it like oh my gosh he's right uh, you know, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm the least violent guy you ever met. I've never, I've never shot a gun. I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to load one. Um, but he pointed out that's where Justin came from is this like stress and guilt that you pent up during this really um, horrible period in your life. And, and then once I embrace that, once I'm like at peace with, okay, that's where Justin came from. Then the final say quarter of the book, third of the book wrote itself. Then I was at peace with this character. Like now I know where he comes from. And it was a therapeutic book to write. The first one cross here it was a therapeutic. It was, um, and it, it would actually, it was emancipating because I, when I wrote the second book, matriarch came, um, now I knew what I was dealing with. I knew what, what this person was finally, because in the beginning it was a mystery. I really didn't know where he came from, but now I know, okay, this is where he came from in my mind. Let's see where he goes. Let's, let's sort of just let him run, you know? And, um, but that was the genesis of Justin was all subconscious. That's cool. That's very cool. Especially the, I can imagine what that was kind of like an epiphany when Ben was pointed out to you. So huge. It was huge. It, it like, it like changed my, it, it like, I don't want to say it ruined my day. It just <laughs> made me kind of rethink everything I was doing. Um, but it did free me in that I don't have to, this character, now I can just sort of, you know, it's like if, you know, you, you, you have a, you, you catch a bunny and, and you 
let him go and just see where he hops, you know? And, and so the second book was kind of like that. And then Demon Tide, the third book, which we'll talk about today, I really let, let him go. I let, let out the reins. And that's why I said that first passage really wrote itself. I mean, th these characters showed up for the third book. It's like they showed up on my doorstep in costume and they're like, you know, you just go and type and we'll act this play out. That's it really cool. was. It was, that's you cool. know, now on the fourth book, and I'm working with a whole different set of characters and new protagonists and everything much more of a challenge because um, it's a female protagonist for one, which I'm, I'm trying to tackle and do some proper interviews and get my arms around how that's going to look. But for demon tide, I was really fortunate in that Justin and company sort of showed up and, and wrote the story themselves. It, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's true. Doesn't sound crazy at all. That's awesome. It, but it does bring me to ask this next question, which is a writing kind of style sort of thing. So do, is there any outline going on or do you just kind of start writing and figure out where Justin takes you? Um, the first book was completely stream of consciousness. I, you know, I, I had no roadmap at all. The second book, I tried to get a little more, um, okay, make some notes about where I want this to go. With Demon Tide, as, as much as I say it wrote itself, I did as I was getting the ideas, I did sketch them out a little bit more with the new one, uh, which I don't want to spend too much time on. That'll be next time. But each one I find I got to get a little more focused, you know, to make it proper. The first one was, was alchemy. And, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have this like process. I I'm not at all uh, properly trained. And some writers I've met who I really respect, they're like, good, like, don't, like, don't go start and start taking creative writing classes. Don't do what you, you know, just go by your gut. And so I, I've, I've tried to do that. I'm not um, snubbing proper writing education. I'm not. It's just that for me, I, I think I like Demon Tide was so guttural and so just, you know, the, the, I had to let these characters run. And I don't think that's something I could have learned from somebody else. I really needed to be a little stubborn and, and do it myself. And I, I think it's my best work. That's awesome. Well, it definitely keeps your attention, keeps you going. I, I you know, one of the things, you know, let's, let's get into Demon Tide. I mean, overdoses and illegal drug running and greed play a large role in Demon Tide. I mean, are there any messages that you're trying to deliver through your characters or... Yeah, you know, I don't know, but a message, I don't know if it's like didactic. It's it's more um, from personal experience. Um, someone I met who, you know, I cared for and um, what it ended up, oh, I'm going to spare everybody the long story, but, but it ended up, she was a heroin addict. And so, and I lost her, she died. And so it, that world is so foreign to me, fortunately. It's very foreign to me. And so I started to research that and, and um, I was still living on the, in the North shore at the time uh, for part of the book. And I was lucky being with the coast guard license and being involved in boating. I got to know a lot of people up on the North shore in the maritime community. And I started to learn that uh, a lot of fishermen due to their own, mainly due to their own um, technology 
there's been overfishing, and then you have your government regulation. There is a certain, and it is the minority. I am not disparaging the fishing community. These are hardworking, crazy hardworking people. Uh, but there's a minority that said, you know, th there's not much to be uh, made with nets and hooks anymore. We can make a lot more running powder out of Nova Scotia. So I started doing some interviews and I, I discovered that there's a, a supply chain from Nova Scotia to the North shore of Massachusetts. And the city that I used in the book, uh, I fictionalized the name out of respect for the people that live there. Cause I don't, I don't want to write a book about that. I mean, people who read the book, they'll probably read through the lines to what city I'm talking about, but I didn't, I want out of respect for the people I interviewed who said, this is not what our community is all about. There's more to it. And, and there, there absolutely is, but there is that like underbelly that's there. So, um, when I, uh, had this friend I lost, it opened me up to a whole new world. And I guess the met, well, it's not a message. It's, it's more like, um, this, this opiate epidemic and what's going on out there, it's rampant. And it, it's not like when I grew up, you think of these poor souls in an alley or something, and it's not that at all. The people functioning and in, in white collar positions and, you know, all it's a, it's something I had to learn about through interview. Fortunately, um, not through, you know, personal use, but definitely I've been affected by the scourge as have a lot of people, you know, it's much more rampant than people realize. And, um, I want to write about it. I want to explore it. I wanted to, it was bothering me. It, it, like when I learned about what happened to my friend, it was, um, something I needed to, to scratch the surface. I'm like, Hey, this could be a book. This could be a, something to get out there and let people know what's, what's really happening in the community. And, um, so again, I'm, I'm not painting myself as someone who's teaching any, you know, lessons or anything, but it, it was just, this was what was moving me at the time. And I said, I'd like to get this on paper and, and have it uh, really bother my characters. I wanted, I wanted to what was going on with the um, opiate trade and obviously the subsequent fentanyl um, horrors. I wanted this to bother my characters. I wanted them to be jarred by it in some way. And, um, and I think all of them, if you read the book, they all suffer in some way from it. And, um, yeah, it was a tough one to tackle. It was, it kind of wrote itself, which was nice, but it, it's a, it's a, uh, an epidemic that, um, I know it gets a lot of press, but I don't think it gets enough of the right press. I agree with you. I think, I think that's so, and you definitely are right. It does impact your characters throughout the, the book, especially as you find out who, Who's doing what? <clears throat> Let me try that one again. Especially when you find out who's doing what and all that sort of stuff, and it definitely has an impact on the uh, on on all of your characters, and it's just it's just amazing. And, it, and I think you're right. In this world today, it gets attention, but does it get the right attention? And it, and you know, it just kind of comes in ebbs and flows as opposed to what it really needs. Because you're right. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget this movie they showed us when I was in seventh grade, and <laughs> we were in this giant auditorium and it was all about, you know, 
illegal drugs and all this stuff. And they showed these pushers <laughs> and that's what they kept talking about is you got to watch out for the pusher, the pusher who's going to be pushing this, you know, it's such a stupid image compared to what we're talking about today, which is, you know, you have characters in your story right there that wouldn't fit that image. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, it was, uh, to write the book for me was a, an education and in terms of passing on a message, maybe that's something that, um, it could be a takeaway that, you know, th this um, epidemic, it's not um, just focused on the back alleys. It's way more widespread. That being said, the book is not a downer. It's not all, it's not a book just about drugs. It's, it's, that's the sort of the, the, the backdrop is the, you know, drug story that's going on in the, in the trade uh, on the North shore. But um the book is really about the characters. It's really about their interaction, their struggles, uh, their frustrations, their fears, their flaws. And I definitely want to write a character driven book. It's not a book in examining the drug trade because I don't have that level of knowledge. I think I gained enough knowledge to write the novel with conviction, but I don't want to ever probably tackle that topic again because I don't have the, um, the firsthand knowledge. I got you. And I didn't, I didn't want to imply that either, by the way, it just, it's the, it's the, it's the way that it, it moves. That's the part that's uh, going on all in the background that makes them all come into contact with each other. And, and because it definitely is uh, you, you generate excitement and it, you know, there's all kinds of things happening and people's lives are completely ruined by it. And, uh, and uh, we have, uh, um, you know, our, uh, our characters interacting with one another, which brings me to this. I have to, I have to ask you, uh, so, can you talk a little bit about character development? I mean, is there something that you specifically do? And uh, and while we're talking about that, is any do any of them have part of you in them? Yeah, I, I think um, the further along I get into writing, again, Demon Tide's my third novel, um, I am realizing, going back to what Ben taught me about my first novel when I was three-quarters of the way through, it's hard. I mean, certain writers, they'll tell you that in no way is it anecdotal. In no way is it autobiographical. I'm examining something completely um, aside from my my life and my persona. I, I've tried to do that. I can't get away from the autobiographical aspect. Maybe that's a selfish thing. I, I don't think so. I I don't mean it to be. I, I have a hard time getting away from, you know, some aspects of my life and the people that move me and the people that I've known. I mean, you can't make it so um, esoteric that people won't enjoy it and people won't relate. So I, I'm careful about that. Um, but I don't think you, as a writer, my personal opinion, you can ever get away from that autobiographical aspect and approach. I, I don't see how you can shake it. I really don't. That makes a lot of sense, and I, I understand. And just just a side note, you've got some cool characters in there, and uh, and I got to make sure I say this because uh, you know there are I mean people die, <laughs> um, they they in many cases they get what's coming to them, and uh, there's some surprising ones, and there are some surprising ways people die, and I won't go into details, but uh, part of it has to do with uh, um, a car, <laughs> so yeah, the, the, it, it's. Um... Well, there's a few different things, but there's um, the ending. 
um, I've taken some flack for. I, I, I say to people, I say, listen, read the first two chapters. I'll grab you. And I, I love the whole book. I'm very proud of it. But I, I think I hope the ending disturbs you. I want you to walk away disturbed. Oh, I was. <laughs> I was. Sorry. That <laughs> was good. I'd like, it's, I, I like, just as a side note, I did like the ending. It's just that I had to reread it. All right. <laughs> a couple of times. No, so, I, uh, that's by design. That is, I, I want, I want the reader. I want to grab. Um, and let them run through the story. And I hope every chapter keeps them, you know, intrigued and interested. And then at the end, I really did want to kind of, uh, leave them with, a. You know, oh my gosh, what is that like? But not in a you know horrible way, but you know, just like wow, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, you did that, all right. I <laughs> yeah, even the I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a lot of similar feedback in, in a good way. They're like, okay, oh yeah, well, it, it made me go. That's that's why you know I got to ask you this next question because you've already just started talking about it. this is this is not just a three book trilogy, <laughs> so or is it? Well, uh, <laughs> No, no, no. I call it a trilogy, but, um, you know, the new book I'm working on is working with a whole different set of characters and, and, and whatnot. But no, I will revisit, um, especially the young girl in the book, Michonne. Um, she's coming back and she's going to be a little older. And um, I don't know where she's going to go, or what she's going to do, but she's, I've grown to love this little girl. Maybe it's, it could be, you know, I have two daughters in college, you know, and maybe there's a connection there. I'm not sure, but she's coming back. And um, I don't know if it's going to be the next book or two books, but it, it's a trilogy to a point, but it's going to foray. I know you're a Star Wars fan. Not every Star Wars is like the same characters. They foray into different stories and books and movies. And yeah, I, I'd love to be able to take her to the next level. I could see you doing that too. I could see you doing that. And I think that would help out the people with the, <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> so. Well, Michonne has had a, a, a rather unorthodox upbringing. You think? Um, <laughs> but she is in a, a loving family situation. It's just a different family. It's like watching the Munsters or the Adams family, right? It's just Most different. Not, everybody is, not everyone is the Cleavers. You know, or Andy Griffith. <laughs> Sorry, this because I don't want to go there because you know, read you know, listeners, you got to go read because this is awesome, and uh, so I don't want to give away too much. But yes, he is exactly right. Not every family is is that the, they still have that loving environment. It's just a little different. Yeah, that's all. You, you're killing me right now that was such an awesome there's so many awesome things in and around what you're talking about so let's 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 move forward from that just know that that was oh my gosh awesome so and that's cool that uh, you're looking to bring that character back and uh, and i like that idea that you got you got another book coming and it's just going to deal with different characters i I like that too uh you know before we you know one of the things we talked about earlier is that uh you know influences that you've had and you've talked about a couple of them and one of the the books you've told me that you tell uh, other people that they should really read is the is stephen king's on writing um, can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do a lot of speaking and interviews and, and so forth. And I uh, invariably, if, if I'm in front of a crowd, someone will say to me, you know, 
I, I'm thinking about writing a novel and what's what's my steps and what do I do? And I say, well, first and foremost, prerequisite reading. And it's the only one is Stephen King's on writing. And before you really want to sit down and write a book, you have to embrace what he's saying there. And it's funny because Stephen King, the first, say, half of his career, a lot of it was, um, you know, horror, and it was sort of dismissed by the literary community. Um, now I feel Stephen King at his, where he's at, he's going to get out as one of the great American authors, uh, storytellers, because his work, the la the second half of his career, it's certainly not all horror. I mean, you know, it's rough stuff, some of it, but his recent one, Billy Summers, I loved, and that was very different. Um, but yeah, on writing is something that um, I think should be not taken lightly. I think it should be devoured by someone looking to write. And I say that with encouragement because I think if someone's serious about, you know, trying to sit down and put a book together, Stephen King's on writing will give you inspiration. It, it's going to, you know, it, it will just change you and you'll be so excited especially in the beginning of that book, if you remember, I mean, Stephen King didn't grow up in a, you know, silver spoon environment. I mean, it's pretty tough. And yet he never let get in the way what exactly he wanted to do. Um, there's a scene in that book where if I have it right, I'm paraphrasing. I haven't read it in a while, but I have read it twice is that they were living, he and Tabitha, I think, they had two kids at the time. I know his, I don't think his third child, Owen, who's now an author with him, was born. But they were living in a trailer, basically. And Stephen King was uh, teaching, I think, part-time at UMaine. And they're up in the woods somewhere. And, you know, he was struggling, you know, alcohol, depression. He was having a hard time. And he had the manuscript for Carrie. And he got so frustrated one afternoon, he threw it in the garbage. And he sort of kind of, from what I read, and this is, these are his words, I, I guess he sort of passed out one afternoon and Tabitha sifted the uh, manuscript out of the garbage and sent it to this publisher they have been speaking with, and the rest is history. So it's a great message to new writers, and I still consider myself, even after three novels, new a new writer. It's a great message that, yeah, it is a tough business. It is frustrating. It's um, there's a lot of alone time. It's an isolating business, isolating craft, uh, as evidenced by The Shining. That's one of the um, reasons Stephen King wrote The Shining is the whole isolation of writing. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism in The Shining aside from the boo and ghosts. I mean, there's a lot more going on there. Um, so that, you know, anyone who wants to sit in front of the keyboard and try, you got to read On Writing First. That's your prerequisite. Cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. And Matt, we're, we're getting close to finishing up here. And uh, uh, where can people connect and learn more from you? Well, they can always visit uh, mattfitzpatrickbooks.com. That's mattfitzpatrickbooks.com. And uh, I love getting emails at mfitz71 at comcast.net. mfitz71 at comcast.net. And uh, I love getting emails. Uh, please check out the website. Please check out my other work. 
Uh, as we discuss with Demon Tide, the new book, while it is book three of a trilogy, I did write it uh, so that you don't have to feel like you know you need to have read the first two. Of course, I wish you will, uh, but I wish you would, but you don't have to. And I did that. I learned that from John D. McDonald, who his Travis McGee series was 21, 22 books. I've read the series twice, uh, not in a sitting, but over the years, I've read the series twice. And what I loved about his work is you can pick up a John D. McDonald book, whether it's book one, a book eight, a book 15, and, and you're, they all stand alone. And I think that's a craft unto itself. Because you don't want to have the reader having to start at book one and forcing. You don't want to force the reader to do anything, especially today where there's so much competition. Netflix and, I mean, there's a hundred streaming services. And, uh, you know, you want to make people enjoy reading and get back, get back to basics. I love that. I love that. And I will have that information where to contact you in my show notes. So it'll be easy for them to, to come back and find you, which will be good stuff. Good stuff. So I got, I got two last questions I want to ask you, Matt. And, and the first one, these are just questions I like to ask my guests. The first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you're feeling, maybe feeling overwhelmed and want to quit? Uh, you know, I'm lucky to have a really good support network. Um, I think that's important. Uh, I have family that are very encouraging, always have been. Uh, friends, very encouraging, although they take their jabs at me out of, out of fun. Um, and, you know, I like to, I like to exercise. Uh, if you saw me, you, you don't know it all the time, but I do like to, that helps kind of clear your mind once in a while. I like getting out in the water. Um, you have to get away from it. I mean, the vision of a, a new author sitting for 10 hours at a time, you know, toiling. Some writers do it. I can't. You, you got to kind of, because it is a very lonely, isolating craft. So you got to, what's important is when you do feel overwhelmed, I think it's important you kind of re-engage the world. You know, even if it's going down to your coffee shop and having a conversation with a friend or two, um, communication is crucial because once you feel cut off, you're going to end up like the shining, like you get, you got to feel engaged. So when I, and, and believe me as a writer, as an author, I, I don't think there's an author out there that will disagree with me. You're going to have moments, plenty of them. We're going to feel like, what am I doing? Where am I going? I'm stuck. This is a, a wheels are just spinning. Um, it's important for me to either, you know, get out in the water helps maybe get a little game of tennis in, uh, but mostly it's you got to engage other people. We're meant, we're, we're beings that are meant to communicate. And invariably as a writer, when you go out there and talk to people, you're going to pick up ideas. I mean, there's a selfish aspect. You're going to pick up, they'll, people love to tell stories about their lives and you know, Hey, what happened this week? Oh, my son, my, this, you're going to pick up fodder. So there's a selfish aspect and there's also a, a healthy aspect that as a writer, you can't live in an igloo. You got to get out there and, and stay engaged with the public. Love that. Awesome. Last question for you, Matt. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate. I've had a lot of great teachers, instructors, um, I guess the one guy that comes to mind is a gentleman named Peter Richards. I, I went to a high school 
up on the North Shore called St. John's Prep. And he was my senior history teacher. So I was, you know, 17, 18. And up until that point in time in high school, you learn about, you know, American history, which I'm, I'm fascinated with, you know, European history and whatnot. But, you know, a lot of it I couldn't really relate to because it happened so long ago. But Peter introduced us as a bunch of 18-year-olds. I went to an all-guys school, a bunch of 18-year-old guys. We studied for a whole semester, it seemed like, Vietnam. And I graduated high school in 89. So there was still plenty, you know, my father's generation, he fortunately didn't have to go, but a vets around that, you know, cousins, uncles, friends, you know, there's a lot of these guys around. There still are, but back then there was more and they were more, you know, in my life. To, to have Peter open our eyes up, you know, we read uh, Rumor of War, um, forget exactly who wrote that, um, but that was a big one. Um, and he like really examined what happened there, not from one side. You know, he really, you know, we, we learned about, you know, um, my lie. We, you know, learned about what happened at DNBN Foo and all this stuff that opened our eyes as 18 year old, you know, boys. So we say we were men, but we weren't, we were boys. And um, he just, was a guy and I, I, I lost contact with him, but I did stay in contact with him up until about 10 years ago. Not for any reason. You just, you know, you kind of fade off. Um, but he was an eye opener. And uh, while he wasn't an English teacher, I know a lot of authors point to their English teachers who I always had great ones, but he was something that he was someone that just grabbed me and shook me and taught me about a piece of history that it wasn't like, George Washington. I mean, these are like guys that I know, you know what I mean? Like that live next door that went through this and the dimensions and the complexity of what went on. It still is jarring to this day. It, that, that is, um, uh, but anyway, in a, in a, before I get too far into that, uh, Peter Richards, I would say the most influential uh, teacher. And I, if he ever sees this, I hope he's doing well. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Matt, for sharing. And I got to tell you, Demon Tide captures the reader's attention from the very beginning, from scenes that make you feel like you're there for anyone who's ever been seasick. Just wait. <laughs> there's action. There's moments of, and, I, and just, just as a note, there's moments of, oh, crap, didn't see that coming. <laughs> and, and you build interest and the desire to want to know what happens next. Justin is awesome. Demon Tide is an excellent read and brings the, to light a societal problem he's addressing as well. Thanks, Matt. Wishing you the very best. Thank you for the opportunity. Say hi to everyone. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.